big turning point, I think, was the extra China trying to bring in these extradition laws. So, uh, if anybody was protesting against Beijing in Hong Kong, these laws would allow China to just take them over the border to supposedly face a court, but potentially never be seen again. following is a conversation with Tom Latham. Tom has been many things in life, from a professional musician to the founder of the Yarra Trail Clothing Company. It was his experiences as a journalist in 1960s Hong Kong, however, that I was most interested in. Tom first visited China in 1962, travelling there right through the Cultural Revolution until 2005. He also established a company which represented Sichuan Province in Australia for textiles, clothing and footwear. On the podcast, we discuss some of Tom's experiences and views on China. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. like Walter Mitty land. <laughs> you familiar Who's with Walter Mitty? There's an author called James Thurber and he wrote this book, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Walter was just an ordinary guy but he imagined himself into these fantastic roles. Uh, he was a killer and a brain surgeon and all this sort of thing. So in 1962... Hong Kong to me was like Walter Mitty land and I thought I was Walter. So, China and uh, Asia generally seems to have always had this uh, allure for Westerners and represented sort of a call to adventure. So that was certainly true for you, was it? Absolutely. And maybe I should ex- explain a bit more about my Walter Mitty feeling. Um, in short, because there were so few expats living in Hong Kong in those days, uh, you could pretty much get a job in anything you wanted. Uh, so I started out as a journalist who couldn't type, never worked on a newspaper in my life. What do you mean couldn't type? As in, I could had, not type. I, I'd never typed. Really? Um, it did cause the news editor to resign. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. But... Uh, The story goes, I was hired on the spot and this news editor, English guy, handed me a piece of paper and said, here's a PR handout, sub it down to one para. Well, I thought he might have been speaking Chinese. So I sat me down at this old Underwood typewriter, manual of course, and so old that the letters had been worn off the keys. 
So not only could I not type, I couldn't read the letters. Anyway. That's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> it was. But what did, you, what did you do then? So how did you work as a journalist without the ability to type or a typewriter with letters on it? Well, I, I managed to get a to few teach pa- yourself. Pa- I did a praise which I learned at school, gave that to him, uh, but that was the last I saw of him. Uh, I learned a two-finger type and uh, there was a big advantage because I was one of only two or maybe three native English speakers working as a reporter. There were Indians, Filipinos, Chinese. And they, and they wanted an English speaker. Is that partly why? Well, I got the plum jobs because I could go to government house, I could go and interview movie stars or whatever, arriving at Kai Tak Airport, uh, performers at, performing at City Hall, whereas some of the other journos um, had a sort of what we call Chinglish, <laughs> cross between Chinese and English. Mm. Um, yes, so it, that was my first MITI experience. That led me into a job at Radio Hong Kong um, as a radio news reporter. Um, again, no experience, um, but I was scripted by a guy called Frank Bennett who uh, used to work on Four Corners, the ABC. So, yeah, again, um, just lucked into the job. I did have to change my speaking voice quite a bit. I had to get rid of the flat A because... What do you mean the flat A? Is in- well, uh, I instead of saying chance, chance. Chance. Why is that how they dance, speak? Dance, not dance. Well, in the, back in 62, Radio Hong Kong was like the BBC and the reporters, journalists had to speak what was called received English. I mean, nowadays you get people speaking all manner of dialects and... Accents. Accents. But if you... Well, you wouldn't remember, but it was the same in Australia back in those days. All the TV presenters, radio announcers had to speak proper English. And was that just because there weren't as many people uh, working in radio and so they wanted to optimise uh, their audience and the majority of their audience uh, responded to that kind of um, cadence and accent? No, it was just more the style of the day. Um, a lot more proper. A lot more proper. Um, and I suppose yeah, RHK followed the BBC in London and it was probably important that their broadcasters spoke proper English for the benefit of the Chinese and the people who had English as a second language. Because it was enunciated so much more clearly, they could understand it more clearly. Correct, yes, yeah. And who were the kinds of people that you'd interview for Radio Hong Kong? Um, One comes to mind was Dame Margot Fontaine. Um, You probably haven't heard of her, but she was... one of the most famous ballerinas in the world, English. She used to dance with Nureyev and so on. But at the time she arrived in Hong Kong, um, she just got out of jail in Panama because she was married to a Panamanian 
ambassador and he was involved in the attempted, an attempted coup backed by Fidel Castro. Castro had dropped off. They were on a yacht, uh, Margot and the husband, whatever his name was, and the, their yacht rendezvoused with a Cuban boat that dropped arms off in the water and they retrieved them wow. and gave them to the Panamanians. Anyway, they got sprung and... So Castro was funding uh, a, a Panamanian coup yes. and was using them as the go-between. It, uh, they were part of the, the plot, yeah. Wow. And so, so what was she doing in Hong Kong then when you were... Well, uh, she'd been released from jail in Panama. I think she, she'd been back to London and was coming to Hong Kong to perform, yeah. What was it like to live in Hong Kong back in the... Did you say 1962? 1962, until... When? I was there till 72, so exactly a, a, decade. a decade. And what was it like to live there? Well, it was still a colonial city in 62. I mean, the tallest building was about 14 storeys, which is hard to imagine today. Mm. Uh, and there weren't that many expatriates, so... Um, there was a very small Aussie community. Uh, but the great thing about it was it was a social leveller. Anybody could rock into Hong Kong and pretend that they were royalty or, you know, had lots of money or whatever. So you were forced to take people on face value, which was terrific. It meant you did meet a lot of uh, rogues and vagabonds <laughs> But on the flip side, uh, my wife and I became friendly with people who went on to stellar careers like Lord Paddy Ashdown. Uh, who was that? Uh, he became the leader of the Social Democrats in Britain. Um, who else can I think of? Um, oh, J.K. Rowling's literary agent, Christopher Little. Uh, Chris Ernst. 25% of everything that JK ever earned. So a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, but people like that, of course, in those days, they were, we were all young guys just uh, having fun. But uh, there was a lot of interesting people in Hong Kong. So there was an ability to, for want of a better word, fake it until you make it. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes, yeah. yeah. And I'm the first to admit that <laughs> I was a faker. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention that my next job was for a foreign exchange company uh, that also dealt in precious metals, gold in particular, uh, and they were actually a front for the CIA. But uh, maybe more about that later. No, we can... I'd love to go into that right now. If that's all the same you. So tell me more about that. How were they a front for the CIA and what was the CIA using them for? Uh, long story. There was a, this operative called Nicholas Deek, who was a very smooth Hungarian, working for the what was then the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. And uh, Nick Deek, was operating in Southeast Asia. When the, they set up the CIA, 
they needed a funding body, so they established Deke and Co, or Deke and Pereira, as it was known in some countries, and uh, it became one of the biggest foreign exchange dealers and gold traders in the world. But it was a it was a gold trader, but that was the CIA's way of washing their money. Well, yeah, more getting clients. There was a legitimate. It was a legitimate business in one respect. The clients didn't know it was operated by the, or funded by the CIA. Established is probably a better word, uh, but it was a way of the CIA financing their covert and black ops. And what was the CIA doing in Hong Kong at the time? Oh, God knows. <laughs> well, uh, I'll give you, for instance, when I was there, uh, we had a lot of purchases from mainland China of Indian rupees. And my boss, uh, a pretty astute guy, reported this to the CIA and they worked out that China was planning to invade India and the reason they wanted all these rupees was for their advanced troops to have money when they arrived. When they landed. Yeah. Wow. So stuff like that. And then... Um, I'd be sitting at my desk and these guys would come in from Air America, uh, pilots, still dressed on their peak caps and white short sleeve shirts, but they'd have these black leather bags and uh, so almost dragging on the ground. And this was <laughs> um, them smuggling money out of who knows where. Yeah, gold, that's why the bags were so heavy. So there's been tensions between India and China since the 1960s. Oh, and way before way that Way before too. that. Yes, yeah. So it's not just a beef between the Communist Chinese Party and India, it's, um, it goes... No, there's been border disputes on and off. Uh, I'm no expert in it, but, uh, yeah, there's a long history. And is that just because of their proximity to each other or is there something more uh, to mm, it? That's a... Hard question. I mean, ideologically, they seem um, uh, complete uh, opposites. I, I think it's more territorial. Mm. Did you see that conflict between on the border about eight nine months ago between the Chinese? Yes, that, and that was there was one report that said the the Chinese were actually using microwaves to blast the Indians. What do you mean using microwaves? As in, uh, l- like a laser gun to give them what radioactive so, poisoning and. Or kill, or them. kill them. Gee, that's bizarre. I I heard um because it was a there were no guns were used, no normal guns were used. Correct. And it was, but everyone was beaten to. There were like sixty deaths, and they were all beaten to death. Yes. Weren't they? Now this is a rumor, mm. but uh, it wouldn't surprise. Well, wow. I shouldn't say that. It's not beyond. I'll the, say it for you. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it's it's wouldn't not, not surprise me at all. It's not beyond the bounds of. Uh, Probability, yeah. Uh, um, could you describe the history of British rule in China and especially how it relates to Hong Kong? Okay, well, it's again a big question because it goes back to the Opium Wars and how China was forced to cede the island of Hong Kong and Kowloon Peninsula to Britain uh, 
that happened in 1841 and it was part of the so-called gunboat diplomacy. And what does gunboat diplomacy mean? Well, it means the Brits were sending war boats up the Yangtze and holding Chinese villages and towns sort of almost to ransom. And uh, China was forced to make concessions, give the British trading ports within China and give them in perpetuity uh, Hong Kong Island, which is from memory about 32 square miles, uh, the Kowloon Peninsula, which is, I'll say, 365 square miles, and that ran up to the Chinese border, which was called Jordan Road, and beyond that with the new territories. And then later on, Britain leased the new territories for 99 years from China, so that added to Kowloon. Um, I don't. I could go on for hours. Mm. It's a complicated. It's a. It's a big Mm. question. Yeah. But why is is Hong Kong just as far as trade routes go really important uh, to to certain countries? Is that why Britain cared about securing the Kowloon Peninsula and Hong Kong, but uh, not necessarily other parts of mainland China? Yes, it it was very valuable and uh, they did have concession ports in other parts of China, Shanghai particularly, but uh, Hong Kong was a little bit like Singapore. It was a perfect port, uh, probably one of the safest ports around Um, and... And was just positioned well geographically for yes. trade. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. How does Hong Kong differ culturally from mainland China? In '62, there wasn't a lot of difference because it was most of the Chinese people in Hong Kong had really only arrived in big numbers post. 1949, when the communists took over the mainland. As refugees? Well, both. Um, The people with money had already fled the communists and and they were the ones who set up manufacturing industries and agriculture in Hong Kong. Um, So a lot of the manufacturers that I was dealing with in '62 were sons of the soil. You know, they were they started off as farmers in Guangzhou, the southern province. Um, interestingly, some of them used to keep a long fingernail on their little finger, which is uh, just to show that, that they weren't manual workers, that they were of the Mandarin class, ah, right. which, of course, they weren't. But kind of like but, having fair skin back in the day for... Westerners meant you weren't it, part of the working class. Or, correct. Is this a sign of yes, status? Yeah. So uh, I'd say, I guess, 90% of Hong Kong's population in 62 would have been Cantonese from Guangzhou, um, Guangdong as it was called, and everybody spoke Cantonese. Very, 
in fact, hardly anybody spoke Mandarin. Were you very aware of what was going on in China during, I mean, 1962 isn't that far beyond uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution generally. Were you and were Westerners in general aware of what was going on in China or was it kind of kept under wraps? China was totally under wraps. Nobody had any clue and uh, that's where I was very fortunate to go into China in 1963. Uh, I was then working for a British trading company and uh, they got a rare invitation to one of the very early Canton trade fairs. And for some extraordinary reason, they said, this is, goes back to Walter Mitty again, they sent me off to Canton and... Uh, As a CIA operative, Tom. No rubbish. <laughs> no connection. Uh, and I, I hasten to add, I, I was never involved with the CIA. Of Just, course not. Of course uh, not. No, no. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that, that trip to Canton, to the Canton Trade Fair, was an eye-opener because there was only a handful of Westerners there in those days. Where is, where is Canton, sorry? Just... Canton is now called Guangzhou. Which, which is... Oh, so it's... Well, Guangzhou is the capital of... Sorry, <laughs> let me start again. Guangzhou is the province. Guangdong is the capital. capital. Mm-hmm. So the old name was... Uh, but it's Guangzhou is the uh, southern province? Correct, uh, yeah. yes, right. Southeast below uh, Xinjiang. Yes, and just over the border from Hong Kong. Yeah. So, and Shenzhen is only a few miles inland. So um, arriving by train, sitting in a huge armchair with anti-Macassas and being served endless cups of tea and food. Uh, I went to stay in this hotel called the Yangcheng, Russian-built. was only a few years old, but already it was starting to crumble. And uh, everything in those days was made in China. So some of the things made a big impression on me, like uh, the toilet paper. It had uh, little slithers of timber in it, like, Parts of a matchstick. What uh, lined in the toilet paper? It as part of the toilet paper. Yes, yeah. But why was that? They were just using whatever. Be, be, whatever because they could get their, hands their production was so basic. Mm. Yeah. You know, in sixty three, China didn't import anything. Mm. Everything had to be made locally, and it was so crude. Um, another impression that was made on me was. Um, I booked an early morning wake-up call from the reception desk in the Yangcheng and all of a sudden the phone's ringing and I pick it up and a voice says to me, get up, get up. So it was my wake-up call. But at the same time, I felt something pierce my ear, the shell of my ear, and blood was coming out. And I looked at the hands set and... There was this spike of plastic or whatever material they'd, Bakelite or whatever they'd used. Obviously, the mold had split and they hadn't bothered to, to shave it, it off. So yeah, I put a Shit. hole in my ear with a telephone handset. 
that would have been painful as. <laughs> it was. Um, so has Hong, Kong, Hong Kong's always – has Hong Kong since the opium wars uh, had more democratic features to its uh, political system than mainland China or is that a more recent? It always had more democratic um, in that it was a pure trading post and uh, the British government – didn't really, they weren't worried about the political aspect at all. It was all about free trade. I mean, it was one of the very first free ports in the world. What does that mean, free port? As in no, no tariffs? No, no import duties, tariffs. No. Right. And, and that's where the duty-free stores all around the world started. Uh-huh. Uh, an American guy who's still around, I think his name is uh, Robert Miller, still living in Hong Kong, to my knowledge, he hit on the bright, bright idea of opening up a duty-free store in Hong Kong. Wow. So, well, I've, never, I've never understood what those duty-free stores are. So they, uh, because they're at an airport or they're somehow not technically in that country, that means they're tariff-free or...? I think it's just an arrangement that uh, the duty-free operatives have with governments that uh, it's become the norm for every airport to have a duty, at least one or more duty-free stores. Right. Do you, do you think that Hong Kong and its democratic features uh, represent an aggravating opposite to Beijing's political system? Is Hong Kong an ugly reminder of capitalism and the traditional remnants of China in general? Yes, uh, because Hong Kong is really the home of capitalism in Asia uh, and it also demonstrates the uh, wonderful entrepreneurial skills of the Chinese because Hong Kong was just a barren rock. There's absolutely zero resources there. And uh, over the years, the Chinese who migrated to Hong Kong built it, first of all, into a strong manufacturing base and then later into a financial centre. So it's been a beacon beacon of capitalism and back in the 60s, uh, Chinese mainland people revered Hong Kong because they'd been through such a grim time under communism, they, everybody wanted to come to Hong Kong and that was a massive problem, um, particularly in 1967 when the Red Guards got very active in China. Thousands of people were flooding over the border of, from China into Hong Kong every day and, and being pushed back. Uh, they try again the next night. And hundreds of bodies were found floating in Hong Kong Harbour um, because they'd either been trussed up and with their hands, hit feet tied, so bodies floating in the harbour from coming down the Pearl River from China, or uh, refugees trying their luck floating on basketball bladders or whatever they could find. Just to get and out just of floating China. across the water into Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. 
I actually went out on police launches and saw this firsthand. Wow. So it's Hong Kong's definitely bad optics for Beijing as far as how the world looks at communism, how the world looks at the CCP specifically. Well, the, wor- the wheel has turned so dramatically that now um, it's almost the reverse that, and I'll just give you, for instance, uh, I was last year I was in Italy and met these four young... Are you worried about the time here? Cause I, no? Not at all. We can go for as long as we want. <laughs> okay. The longer the better. <laughs> I just seem to be rambling. but um, Rambling's good. In this little town in Puglia, these four young Chinese students, I guess, asked me would I take their photograph. And remember, this is only last year. And I said, of course. And I said, where are you guys from? And they said, oh, Guangzhou. I said, oh, Guangzhou. I said, uh, I used to live in Hong Kong and I, I speak some Cantonese. And one of them said, oh, Cantonese, disgusting language. We don't speak Cantonese. Only Hong Kong people speak Mandarin. Uh, Cantonese. Wow. So there's a so, real... Uh, so talk about turn of the wheel. Mm. You know, in my time in Hong Kong, mainlanders were literally killing themselves to get into the place. Now, because mainland Chinese feel so uh, elevated, some of them are looking down on Hong Kong people. And they're from a financial standpoint as well so no one's got a no country's got a faster growing middle class in china do they no and they're economically just growing exponentially at the moment so has it gone to the stage now where uh, they can't even look at hong kong uh, jealously in that sense and they just they just see it as a um almost just a rivalry between uh, mainland china and hong kong well of course the first thing we have to say is that Hong Kong is now part of China. Mm. Mm. So uh, it's, and sadly. Um, well, let's go, let's go into that. So what's, um, when did Hong Kong become part of uh, mainland China again? And what were the uh, legal agreements that were reached between the British government okay, well, and, and Beijing? 1997, and this all goes back to the lease I mentioned on the new territories. In 1985, I think it was, Margaret Thatcher recognised that, okay, when this 1990 lease runs out, Hong Kong is finished because the water supplies, the food supplies were all in the new territories and Hong Kong, Kowloon Peninsula and Hong Kong Island couldn't exist without new territories. So... They started negotiating. The man who did the heavy lifting was Chris Patton. Uh, I think he's probably Lord Patton now. And he did an outstanding job, in my view, of negotiating with Beijing this 50-year agreement where China would honour the rule of law, democratic principles... Etc. That existed in Hong Kong. Now, and that would begin in 1997. Night from 1997, which is when China reverted. Sorry, Hong Kong reverted back to China. But 
I think people who had a knowledge of China, um, even then, realised that it wasn't going to run the 50 years and the troubles of recent times, the protests, the cracking down by Beijing, it was inevitable and unfortunately I think the students exacerbated it. Well, they gave... In recent but years, the student protests. A reason to really come down hard on them. Or a justification for it. Yeah. But Thatcher negotiated that with Deng Xiaoping. How is, how is Deng Xiaoping viewed by the West and by the Chinese? Was he a, a good leader? Was he... A very good leader. In fact, I, I'd say he was viewed very favourably by both. Uh, as you know, he was the one who opened China up. That's it, right? And started it on its more pseudo-capitalist trajectory. Yes, and got the economy going. He said, right, we have to follow, not follow, but uh, be open to Western ideas and uh, making money is good. Mm. What what sparked the uh, more recent protests in Hong Kong? Uh, and how long have they been going on for now? The... The big turning point, I think, was the extra China trying to bring in these extradition laws. So, uh, if anybody was protesting against Beijing in Hong Kong, these laws would allow China to just take them over the border to supposedly face a court, but potentially never be seen again. Um, so it was very worrying to the, the Hong Kong populace in, in general. Um, and, and indeed, China tried to establish an extradition uh, law or arrangement with Australia. Because it was a yeah. crime committed on Chinese territory. Yes, but fortunately the Australian government didn't fall for that. Mm. Yeah. Having lived for so long in Hong Kong and loved it so much... Do you find it quite depressing to see what's happened to it? Yes. Um, I think the lifestyle for the bulk of the populace probably hasn't changed dramatically. Um, But but it's more they see the writing on the wall. It's the writing on the wall and it's just the erosion of what was really a British system of justice um, and democracy and and freedom. I mean, the, that's probably the biggest difference between what I call the mainland and Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was the, one of the freest places in the world. The, the British did a great job uh, in not bringing in a lot of controls or the politics was very secondary to the British when they controlled it. And so the locals had a legislative council. Um, they weren't that effective. But basically Hong Kong was just a freewheeling, laissez-faire society where anybody could have a go at anything. Mm. And they wanted that, everyone wanted that left alone and... Yes. Now Beijing's putting their territory... And, and before long, 
it'll be the same. I'm guessing that uh, you know, they might even try and knock out things like Facebook and other, you know, Turn it into an internet. Yes, as, as they have done in the mainland. How do you think the situation uh, will be resolved? Do you think that they're perhaps heading towards something resembling the Tiananmen Square massacre? No, no. Um, I think the young students have woken up that really it was a t- tilting at windmill fight that there was no way they could ever win. Um, but aren't they still going as hard as they were at the start or not? No, not to my knowledge, no. So no. they've been intimidated? Yeah. That will by the extradition law and specifically? Or? Well, just by the crackdown, um, you know, the Chinese using the Hong Kong police force to crack down on them hard and then finally uh, allowing the PLA troops that there had always been something like 8,000 PLA troops stationed in Hong Kong uh, since 1997, since the takeover, but they just stayed corralled there. And it was only late in the protests that uh, Beijing allowed them loose. And that was the real frightener for the people of Hong Kong. That the army was actually getting involved. Yes, yeah. But if if Mao killed 50 million people, give yes. or take... Yep. And if Xi Jinping's father was a close ally of Mao, yes. how can we expect the CCP not to uh, take more extreme measures, um, whether it's in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs? Um, is there an ideological continuity between the CCP of the 60s and the CCP of today? Incredibly, Yes. Um, if you'd asked me this question before Xi Jinping came on the scene, I would have said no way. But um, incredibly, he's got rid of all his opposition under the guise of accusing them of corruption and then having them jailed for... And killed. Hasn't he killed a lot of um, his generals and anyone who's stood up against him? Probably. but Or they just haven't but, been heard of. But, yeah, yeah. You, you never know. But for sure and certain he's removed all opposition and, as we know, appointed himself emperor for life um, and he's gone back to the hard Leninist uh, principles that Mao Zedong started out with. And he's even put his own <clears throat> personal philosophy into the Chinese constitution, hasn't he? Yes, it's pretty much a one-man band. Uh, He's a he's such a interesting figure because he's so you see footage of him or hear him talk and he just seems like such a calm, relaxed, nice guy, but then just the ruthlessness of what he's doing behind well, it's just it doesn't square up with the man you see on television. I I know what you're saying. He looks very benign and very mm. urbane, but uh, we know that that's not right. Do you think people sometimes conflate criticisms of China with racism and does China sometimes use this to their advantage? Yes, they do. They, they play the race card when it suits them. Um, that said, within a- Asia there is a pecking order. Uh, 
this is my homespun theory, that the Chinese look down on the Japanese, the Japanese look down on the Koreans, the Koreans look down on the Thais, that, uh, so it goes. Um, so there's that. <laughs> and there's a lot of racial hatred in Asia. Well, I, I don't know. Hatred might be a bit strong, but there's certainly... Is it, uh, though, given the... I mean, even just the rape of Nanking and what happened between the Japanese and well, the Chinese yeah, well, true. wasn't that long ago. Yes, that, that is true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there's no love lost between Jap- Japan and China and um, to some extent Japan and Korea. Mm. But, Historically, to what we were just saying, I mean, China has been the victim of... Uh, greater powers many times, whether that be the Mongols, the British, or, as we just said, the Japanese. In that context, is there perhaps a vengeful undertone in their rhetoric and in their ascent in general? Yes, I'm sure there's a big element of this, and uh, Xi Jinping plays on this very much in his bid for to whip up nationalism, um, you know, going back to the humility that uh, China had to suffer. And there is a point there. I mean, when I first went to Shanghai in 1974, driving from the airport to the hotel in the city, I couldn't believe all the different architecture because there were something like 14 different countries that had concessions just in Shanghai, um, not just the countries you'd expect, uh, Britain, America, but South American countries, obscure countries. And, and they've just been dominated for centuries. Well, well not so much centuries, but um, during the 1800s, 1900s, these countries just came in and uh, did what they want with the place. Pretty much. Mm. Shanghai, greater Shanghai city, was divided up into concessions. So let's say we call them suburbs. Certain suburbs would be controlled by the French or the Germans or the Japanese or the British. Um, And so because of um, all the occupying forces that they've had or occupying countries that have occupied them in the past, China now sees this as their time potentially and that is probably reflected in their aggressive territorial claims uh, with Taiwan, uh, just with the South South China Sea in general, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Occupied might be too strong a word. Mm. Um, Humiliated. Yes. Mm. uh, I mean, these other countries were there but they weren't out with guns or anything. They were just... Taking advantage of taking the economic advantage of a, what was then a weak country. Now, of course, uh, it's militarily, the in my view, the strongest country in the world. More so than America. Yes. In what sense? In in every aspect. In well, <laughs> um, we now know that through spying, hacking, uh, embedding. Agents stealing, stealing, embedding agents in defence uh, manufacturing country companies all over the world. They're talking globally here, uh, and as of recent days, even 
people that Communist Party members working in our consulates, um, and they are beholden to the party first and foremost. So all this incredible uh, and universities and research centres, that's another avenue, this incredible network of intelligence gathering that the Chinese have mastered has provided them with the latest and greatest military technology globally. So you imagine if you're stealing from you know, the Germans, the Japanese, the Russians... You're getting a bit of everything. Americans, ...and you're getting the latest and greatest. Mm. Um, so that's sort of... Without the investment as without, well to, uh, to discover it's, it yourself. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world, mm. not just military uh, intelligence but economic as well. And that, of course, is how China has catapulted in only 20 years, uh, people forget that it's really only the last 20 years that China has rocketed to this prominence. So to go back to your question, I believe China now has all the in, uh, military know-how and, and with their own brilliance uh, um computing technology and AI, they're probably ahead of the game. And within this decade, um, the rest of the world's armies will be obsolete, in my opinion, because China will have the ability just to turn them off digitally. And just for the listeners as well, China has a, at the moment, they have something around 2.1 million troops in their standing army and the second uh, biggest standing army is uh, the US with 900,000. Yes. So they're in, they've got more troops, more technology. Uh, probably within the next five to ten years they'll have a bigger GDP. Um, exactly. Mm. Just for the listeners as well, could you explain what the Belt Road Initiative is? It was a grand plan... Pardon me. <clears throat> to extend China's uh, influence globally, particularly to the West, um, China had you know, strong connections with the East, meaning Eastern Asia, America. Put Australia into that basket if you like, but not so strong in Africa and Europe. So they hit on this wonderful idea of the Belt and Road initiative and it's paid big dividends for them in the South Pacific, uh, Africa. But what, it's a, what is it though? It's like a, a naval trade route essentially throughout the world uh, for well, economy, for the Chinese economy. It's a way of building infrastructure projects in uh, right around the world. And it served China very well because, let's say, in certain African countries, uh, I've seen buildings built by Chinese labour. The, the Chinese come from China to build it. 
bring their own materials, and oftentimes these projects are white elephants. So I've seen stadiums that never had a person in them. I've seen airports that never had a plane in them, roads to nowhere, um, and in certain countries like Botswana, <clears throat> Zambia, uh, the locals have woken up that uh, this really isn't doing them much good, particularly because um, they have to pay back the Chinese for these goods or developments. Mm. And if they can't, then the Chinese just take over ownership. So they default. So if they default on the loan, China steps in and goes, don't worry about it, don't worry about paying us back, but just give us this port in Marissa, give us this stadium in uh, Chad or yes, wherever. Yeah. And, of course, not all of them are duds. Um, a lot of them are very strategic. As you say, the ports um, that they're built... But this is China's way of trying to get a monopoly on uh, the economic trade routes throughout the world. Is that, is that correct? Or yes, yes, I would I would agree with that. Uh, a monopoly might be a bit strong, but uh, certainly dominance. Dominance, yes. And I've even seen that. Uh, and, and pardon me if I can just add, it, it is a sort of soft diplomacy too. So if they go to South Pacific country that uh, desperately needs certain projects, that's seen as a good thing. And uh, Seen as a good thing. Yeah, by, the, by the populace. Mm. So I know I've just quoted the Africans, some of the Africans mm. who don't like the projects, but in other countries, um, other parts of the world, I mean, Italy has signed up to it. Melbourne Victoria has signed Melbourne up almost, to it. Yeah. Come, come to that. Mm. Uh, so it's a big, big question. Um, it's quick, easy money for a lot of countries. It is, and so it's won them a lot of friends and it means that, let's say, in the UN, if there was a big question came to a vote, uh, a lot of these recipient countries would be voting on China's side. Because they fear economic reprisals from China. Um, yes, or because, or, they, or, or because they can see uh, that China has helped them with, develop their infrastructure. And uh, I've, even, I've even seen that countries, say uh, a country defaults on its loan to China and ends up giving them a port. Yep. When uh, external forces, say like uh, guerrilla forces in Sri Lanka, uh, start threatening that port, uh, not the Sri Lankan government themselves threatening that port, no. but, you know, the Sri Lankan government trying to protect it. China's using that as an excuse to put boots in the ground and defend what they see as a, a private asset. And that's their way of... Because uh, obviously putting boots on the ground militarily is uh, an act of war, but under the guise of the Belt and Road Initiative, they're able to do that without yeah. um, threatening countries in this way. Well, uh, that leads to what's happening currently... In PNG, um, China is spending two hundred million on an island. I think it's called Dura to develop a port for fishing. But uh, people who claim to know the area say that the fishing is not particularly good there, 
And the thing is, this Dura Island is only 200 kilometres from Australia's northern border. How far, sorry? 200 kilometres. Jesus. Yes, you can say that. Um, now, if you look at what happened in the Philippines... So Papua New Guinea's signing on to the Belt Road Initiative and they've, this island's been developed by Chinese correct. investors. Correct. Wow. Which will bring Chinese ships 200 kilometres from our coast. And if you look at what they did in the Philippines, that's how it was started off with Chinese fishing vessels and now, of course, they have uh, Chinese bases off the Philippines. Jeez, that's terrifying. Is Papua New Guinea more cl- more closely allied with China or with Australia? Uh, I don't know the answer, but I suspect they're leaning towards China more than Australia. I discussed it with you offline, but I had a woman named Ray Hungle, who was a Uyghur Muslim, uh, come on the podcast and her parents are locked away in the concentration camps in Xinjiang. Um, we discussed how countries that are signed up to the Belt Road Initiative, even if they are majority Muslim countries, are sending Uyghur asylum seekers back to China uh, because, as we were talking about before, they fear economic reprisals from China. Has the Belt Road morally hamstrung the countries that are signed up to it and are countries being forced to put their economic obligations above their moral obligations? Hmm. In broad terms, there is an obligation. Pardon me. Um, If China is doing these big projects, um, and of course I'm sure there are individuals in governments that are benefiting substantially, um, uh, yes, there is an economic obligation, I believe. That they're putting above their sovereign rights and their moral it, obligations. Yes. Mm. It's a generalisation, but it, it just stands to reason to me. It's kind of ironic that the Communist Chinese Party is perhaps exploiting the biggest flaw in capitalism, namely the prioritisation of wealth over lives. If that makes any sense, there's sort of it's there's some sort of dark humour there that uh, <laughs> communism perhaps wins in the end. <laughs> well, sadly, um, I think a lot of Chinese who travel overseas, either as tourists or on business or students, um, particularly at the moment, if uh, they were visiting America, let's say, uh, they would go back home thinking, well, our system looks pretty damn good. Mm. Because in the 20 years of the rise, they have attained middle class status. Not all Chinese, of course, but uh, the, the Chinese system is looking pretty good. Pretty good. To the Chinese. Mm. Yes. Well, I was listening to an interview with, uh, do you know, Kishore? Mabubani is? No. He was the uh, former president of the United Nations Security Council just for a year or so in the early 2000s. Um, But in the interview he was talking about how for most of China's history their population has lived in poverty and destitution. And he was saying that 
despite the ruthlessness of their government, it's very hard to convince the Chinese people that the one government that has actually pulled them out of this poverty uh, is somehow in the wrong. Um, and as we said, no country has a faster growing middle class or a faster growing economy in general. Um, and th- does this mean like an uprising from within China is impossible because of this? You're never going to get the Chinese people turning on Xi Jinping. Hard to imagine because I think by and large Chinese people are happy with their lot and the spirit of nationalism is so strong. Um, Just, uh, for instance, even the diaspora are feeling this Excitement. excitement about China, which is totally understandable, but um, a friend of mine asked Chinese, this is in the last couple of days, Chinese friend, highly placed in the financial markets in Melbourne, um, what he thought about the Taiwan issue. And at first he dodged the question, but under pressure he said, well, I believe in one China. And here's a guy who's uh, highly placed in the <laughs> Melbourne uh, financial circles. But that's crazy uh, how pervasive uh, that sentiment is throughout the world. Well, yes, and you know, there's probably nothing wrong with it. Uh, we're all proud of our country. and So long as your country's uh, not genocidal. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's... Nationalism is fine, patriotism is fine, but uh, I, I don't think you could say it was right to be nationalistic or patriotic in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And there's not really much difference between the two. Oh, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I, I don't think China, you could possibly compare what China's to doing. To Germany in the 1930s? No, no. But what about the incarceration of, I mean, Rahangul, who I had on uh, the other week, her and her friends and family think that there's exceeding 5 million people incarcerated in Xinjiang and certainly by um, Western estimates in general it's between 3 and 5 million. I mean, what's the difference between that and moving 6 million Jews into the ghettos? Oh, I think there's a vast difference. Um, I don't think China has any plans to murder those Uyghur people. How, how would we know, though? If I mean, we well, haven't heard from any of them. I think we'd know if there were millions being slaughtered as there were in the Holocaust. I think China's game there is to re-educate them, uh, which translates to getting them to follow the CCP line. Uh, I believe China has sent a lot of hand people into the region to to try and dilute the Muslim population. Um, I don't think it's as... It's It's not worth it. It's it's a terrible thing, but I I wouldn't in a fit compare it to the Holocaust, no. But wouldn't you say it's just as suspicious as... I'm sorry to keep hashing it, but... Before 1939, Hitler hadn't done anything worse than what Xi Jinping's done with the Uyghurs. Hadn't done anything worse. Shouldn't we at least be suspicious of what they're doing? 
China's arguing that it's uh, stopping extremism, but beyond trying to unif- bring, I don't think they want to bring Uyghurs in. I mean, they're sterilizing Uyghur women, forcing them to a Well, now, uh, I'm sorry. I listened mm. to your podcast and I thought it was fabulous. Um, you used the word sterilization, but your guests said no mm. uh, to that. But there have been. Pardon me. She said uh, they were using IUDs, interuterus mm. devices, not sterilization. But whether Ray Hungul um, knew it or not, the, the, the UN's even said that they're um, sterilizing them. And they certainly are sterilizing women. You can even, I mean, on the ABC, they're talking about China imposing forced abortions and sterilization. Yeah. But, uh, of course, it's a. Very bad thing, and we—I don't know what we, the rest of the world, can do about it. Probably nothing. Mm. But I, I just go back to the point. I wouldn't make a comparison between that and the Holocaust. Holocaust. Mm. But don't you think that's if you're sterilising the women, you're preventing another generation of Uyghurs coming after them, and it's sort of a sneaky way of without actually putting bullets in heads. Of uh, wiping them out. Yeah. Well, I mean, why would you be sterilising them if you're if you're not trying to wipe them out? Again, I go back to your guest. Um, she said when when you used the word sterilisation, mm. she said, oh, I, "I don't." Know. She was unsure. She was unsure. Mm, she, absolutely. She, she was saying it was more uh, prevention. Uh, yeah, IUDs. Mm. But you can, I mean, I've even got it here on the BBC. China is forcing women to be sterilised or fitted with contraceptive devices in Xinjiang in an apparent attempt to limit the population of Muslims. So they're certainly sterilised. Whether, I mean, I, I actually th- thought Ray Hungul, uh, just because we had a bit of a language barrier, I don't think she necessarily knew what sterilisation meant. Right. Or maybe we should move on from this one. Uh, Mm. I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, I just Mm. don't like the comparison with Hitler. Mm. With Hitler. Yeah. Mm. Maybe it's a bit too soon. (laughs) Well. We should have another podcast in a year or two, uh, Tom. (laughs) And the other thing is, of course, uh, social intelligence Mm. gathering is so much greater. Yes, we don't know a lot what's going on. But But we know more than they would have known about Hitler in the 1930s is what you're saying. Yes, yes, yeah. Right. Uh, Is it possible that uh, China is using their treatment of Uyghurs as a way of provoking Europe and the US into uh, something closer to a hot war? I mean... No, no, I I think it's a completely separate issue. Um, That... They just they have history in this uh, with Tibet, um, other minorities on their borders. Um, they've just subsumed them, mm. um, and you know, once they feel like they're doing other things to aggravate us besides that. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I mean you've only got to read. The Global Times. Do you ever read the Chinese Global Times? When I when I want to hmm? humour myself, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's if anything's going to serve the rest of the world up. It's some of those ridiculous mm. articles. Mm. They're bizarre articles, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, how significant of a player is Australia in all of this? 
Well, we seem to have got ourselves into the front line, which is unfortunate. Um, I think Scott Morrison made a mistake in going hard against China, demanding um, an inquiry into the origin of the coronavirus. Uh, It's not an unreasonable request, but he would have been better advised to do it with a coalition of countries rather than us being in the vanguard. And when I heard Trump trumpeting the fact that Australia was leading the charge on this and what a great job we were doing, I thought, well, this is not going to help our relationship with China and and that's proved to be the case. So I think we have to be careful how we tread. And so that and other <clears throat> issues, pardon me, um, have led to China using Australia as a, an example for the rest of the world that uh, if we are too pushy or step uh, on their toes, we will be punished. So what happens to Australia economically as a result of uh, China's uh, imposed tariffs? And I even just saw on the news today the, uh, there's a new ban on Australian coal. You feel China's going to use... Australia uh, as an example of this is what happens when uh, you mess with us, even just economically. Absolutely. That's their their game. Um, Ironically, it's backfired on them. Because now the rest of the world uh, sees what they're up to. No, well, that, it's certainly not a good look for China internationally. Not that China really gives a fig in my view, but... Um, how it's backfired is economically, uh, if you take lobsters, barley, whatever, wine, um, yes, that's a nasty hit and you feel sorry for those suppliers. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is that uh, China is paying the highest ever price for our iron ore um, and... We are actually making more money, Australia, uh, from our exports to China than ever because they can't replace our iron ore. Um, The Brazilians got special problems. Are we one of the few countries that exports iron ore? Well, Australia and Brazil. um, And Brazil is suffering badly from coronavirus. Um, They've also had floods and production problems, so they're not able to fill the gap. Our iron ore is high-grade and so we're absolutely... It's at record prices. Uh, And then they've also shot their cells in the foot on coal because um, by blocking imports of our coal, they're having to pay top dollar for replacements, uh, they're paying something like $80 a tonne extra. And how much is, just on average, how much is a tonne of coal? I think about 160 Right, so it's doubled. It's doubled their expenses uh, for, for paying yes, for coal. Look, I, I'm not too clear on but the exact roughly. prices, but uh, I, I do know that they're paying this huge price, which is then 
flowing on to their steel makers, which flows on to the general economy. So they really didn't think it through that well. So Australia's almost winning the trade war with China. Well, temporarily. temporarily. Um, they've got lots of levers they can pull. The Chinese or Australia? The, the, Chinese, the Chinese, Chinese, yes. So I, I'm not crowing at all. Uh, this is just a happy situation at the moment, but um, you can bet they'll be working flat out to rectify it. Are tensions with Australia and China the worst they've ever been? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm amazed. I mean, I think the whole world felt that, that the growth of China was a great thing and you know, China was invited into all the world bodies, the WHO, the UN, yada, yada. The UN Human Rights Council? Yeah, exactly, yes, yeah. Um, because it was felt that once the, the populace reached the sort of middle-class standard of living, let's say, um, they would start demanding more freedoms and more democracy. Well, everybody's been blindsided on that one. Nobody saw Xi Jinping coming um, mm. and uh, you know, it's now as repressive, if not more, than probably at any time in, under communism. How do you think a conflict between the US and China would play out? Would it be a war of economics, cyber warfare, nuclear bombs or all of the above? Pretty much all of the above. I mean, economically, no contest. <laughs> As I said earlier, China's exports have increased 21% this year to date. Um, America. 21% in one year? Yes, year on year. Fine. So despite the corona pandemic, China's exports have gone up. So much. if their, their GDP is roughly $13 trillion per year, so that means next year they're going to be making, what, $15, $16 trillion a year. Yes. And you look at American manufacturing, yeah, that's gone the other way. Uh, America has a huge trade deficit with China. So, yeah, that's the economic situation. Um Militarily, as I said earlier, I believe it's pretty much game over there. Mm. Um, if not, it's just a matter if of time. not today, you know, very soon. It's quite sad in a lot of ways. Well, it just seems that we'll have to learn to live with Xi Jinping. I I keep saying Xi Jinping because it's not really the Chinese people. He changed the trajectory of the communist Chinese party, didn't he? I mean. Um, I've been dealing with China and business for 50 years and I've never had a problem, never been cheated or had any major arguments. Um, So I find the Chinese people excellent people to deal with. It's just the the leadership that is... uh, He's just a ruthless maniac. Yes. There's a quote from... Einstein, where he said, I know not with what weapons World War Three will be fought, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Is mutually assured destruction going to be enough of a deterrent with China and the US? 
I think so. I think, I mean, um, traditional war is just about finished in my view. Uh, China is producing amazing drones that can... That they start from the US. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, it's almost, um, I think the next war will be like sitting down and playing a computer game. I mean, we've already seen it uh, with the Americans and their drones in the Middle East. That's only going to accelerate and... It's, it'll be the country with the greatest technology. But not necessarily with uh, thermonuclear weapons. No, mm. no. Mm. Do you think people are naturally inclined toward democracy or toward dictatorship? Oh, democracy. I just, the only reason I say that is uh, I had my first guest on the podcast was uh, Frederick Verva, who was a, He's a professor of ancient history at uh, Melbourne Uni. And we were just talking about the decline of the Roman Republic. And it just seems that a certain point in the lifespan of uh, a political system with democratic features, people slowly move towards wanting a strong man in charge, um, whether that be someone like Augustus, uh, whether that be someone like Xi Jinping, whether that's someone be, be someone like Hitler or Stalin, maybe it's giving in to our worse tendencies. But it almost seems like the easy option for a lot of these countries to—that's our man. He's getting us out of this trouble, um, and we're loyal to him. And loyalty, I think, is infectious as well, and that sort of breeds a cult of personality. Well, you're right. Of course, history does show that uh, most countries, at one time or another fall under a dictatorship. Uh, but I think people, given their dibs, would rather live under a democratic system. Mm. Tell me about the book you're writing or written. Have you finished it? <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, this has been a, about a 15-year project, um, mainly because of my sloth. And the book is partly... Uh, a biography. It just spans my decade in Hong Kong um, and it does include uh, a story going back to that CIA company I work for and there's, there's no secrets here. It's The company I mentioned is called Deke & Co. Um, there's a very good... Uh, YouTube that if anyone's interested in a rollicking read, uh, it's called, I think, the James Bond and the Killer Bag Lady. On YouTube? Yes. Well, well, I I just Googled James Bond and the Killer Bag Lady. What a title. And... That is the end of my story in that uh, Nicholas Deke and his secretary are assassinated in their New York office by a crazy lady um, and it's thought that 
she was a Manchurian candidate. I don't know if you're familiar with mm, that. Absolutely. So yeah. she, she was she, well, in, in the true, truest sense of the term or she was just an undercover operative? No, in the true sense, in that... Uh, in about 1985, the US Senate conducted these inquiries into CIA operations. And at that time, Deakin Company had sort of spiralled out of control a bit. They were money laundering for Colombian drug lords, the Italian mafia, all manner of people. And the CIA wanted to dissociate themselves from Deke. And no less a person than the head of the ING Bank believes that the CIA programmed this crazy lady uh, who actually has a beard. There's a photo of her on this. What's her name? Uh, Well, she's just referred to as the bag lady. The bag lady. She has a goatee beard and they believe that, um, certain people believe that she was given drugs, could have been LSD or who knows what, and programmed to carry out these assassinations. I've got Wall Street banker assassinated by the bearded bag lady. That's the story. Deke, a PhD economist, also built it into a legitimate bank offering foreign currency. Um, that's insane. So so Deke and who was, who was he, the woman he was with, who ran the company with him? Did you say? No, there was. Deke. He 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 was the sole operator. Sole operator of Deakin Co. Yeah, well, I mean, he was he was the founder. But uh, he was assassinated in nineteen in the nineteen eighties by by this bearded bag lady. Bearded bag lady. That's insane. It's like it's, it's amazing. So your so your book uh, ends with that that event. Yes, because um, during my time in Hong Kong. There was an Australian girl who also worked for Deke um, and they used her as a mule to pick up black money from various countries and bring it back to Hong Kong for laundering. And they sent her down to the Southern Cross, as it was, the hotel in Melbourne, to make a pickup, uh, which she did. And that was the last they saw of her. She, she and her boyfriend planned the whole thing. They left Hong Kong on false passports and funny wigs and what have you. Fake beards. Yes. <laughs> and uh, got away with stealing this money. And uh, I was no longer working for Deep, but uh, I was offered 50,000 US dollars by somebody um, <laughs> and his final words to me were well Tom you know this girl very well um, you've got the best chance of finding her and we really don't even need her alive we just need the body because we've got an insurance policy on her so what happened I said that's blood money uh, count me out of that but of course. Th- but the woman <laughs> went on to become a minor celebrity in Australia, America and Holland 
um, extremely wealthy. What was the um, uh, Thurber type of character that you described before? A well, Walter, uh, Walter Mitty. So she yes. sort of took that in her stride, that attitude herself. Uh, reinvented herself. Mm. <clears throat> yep. Wow. Assumed a new name, new persona. That's, that's and, and got away with it. And got away with it. Yes. Rode into the sunset. Correct. That's an incredible story, though. Well, if I ever finish the book, it will be. <laughs> uh, when do you think you'll finish the book? Oh, I, if my wife has anything to do with it, uh, with it within a year. Within a year. Yeah. That's... Who are some of your favourite writers? Somerset Maugham. Um, during my time in Hong Kong, I met James Pope Hennessy III, who was an intimate of Willie Maugham. Um, so you... So I know a man who knew. But were you star? <laughs> were you starstruck at the time? Was it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would have loved to have lived in Asia back in the early nineteen hundreds, yeah, nineteen twenties, thirties, possibly even Shanghai. But I love Somerset Maugham's Far Eastern Tales. So. He's a favourite. Sadly, uh, today we learned that John Le Carre mm, I saw that. has died. Um, another of my favourite authors. Great writer. Yep. Mm. Um, so you can tell that I like... Um, Murder mystery. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. I find that when you have a favourite writer, it's very difficult to stop their style from infecting yours. Do you, have, do you find it hard not to accidentally mimic... The style of your favourite writers? I wish I could. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's very hard to uh, be original as a writer when you're obsessed with Orwell or you're obsessed with Hemingway. Yes. <clears throat> um, I don't think that happens to me. I, I like to think I have my own voice uh, for in writing. Mm. Did it take you a long time to find your own voice? Very much so. Numerous writing courses, um, I did a high-level course with Alan and Unwin and um, I still am working with my mentor from that course who happily believes in my story and is the one who's pushed me to find my own voice. And if I have strayed, um, she says, you know, get back to your voice. Pulls you back in. Yep, yep. Do you find uh, voice... uh well, how would you, what would you, I mean, people always say find your voice or, he, you know, someone has their own voice, but what, what's a sort of more technical definition of your voice, do you think? Uh, how would you, because I can't even think, I can't think of an appropriate synonym for it. It's, it's kind of like, it's a mixture of your life, your personality and your technical ability in words. Yeah, that is such a hard question. But it's, it's interesting how vague the term is. Yes. Um, it means if you stray into a, a different sort of genre of writing that is not really your thing, um, it shows up. The opposite of mimicry almost, if you were. Yes. It, you, you have to be an honest 
look, I, I'm not a writer, so the question's above my pay scale, but, but uh, I think it, it just means being true to your style and the story. Mm. Mm. It's, um, it's, yeah. not, it's not a very good answer. You, no, you, but it's, it's a hard question yeah. to, uh, to what I was saying. I, I'm, I'm sure my... Have you, found, have you found your voice more in technical ability or more in just being truthful to who you are as a person in what you write? The latter. The latter. Yes. Right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Tom. Um, Thank you for having me, Julius. I've enjoyed it. 